Thank you so much, Lucy, for giving me your time and giving me this opportunity to finally get you on the podcast. It's been a journey to obviously have our schedules match up. And I really appreciate you, you getting on the show today. Great, Vivek. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Lucy, I know you from obviously our previous workplace where I used to work very closely with you. But for the audience who may not know you, can you just a little bit give introduction on who are you, what's your what's your journey, and uh, give a little context to the conversations that we are going to have today. So, hello, my name is Lucy Howie. I'm a New Zealander living in, in Amsterdam and the Netherlands. So... About me, uh, I'm now the co-founder of a company called Quan, but before that I've lived, been through 10 countries in, in numerous roles ranging from business strategies, tech startup CEO, executive at a unicorn um, to land here. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, as you said, you're the co-founder of Quan. Share a little bit about what Quan is and what's its mission. Sure. So Quan, we're we're a startup, a um, well-being startup based in the Netherlands. So our mission is to place well-being at the heart of success. We are an end-to-end platform to improve team and individual performance by assessing the underlying causes and then matching to the right solutions. Wow. I think it's basically a, a, a solving a problem quite contemporary to the times that we are living in. Can you give us a little bit view on what led up to having you starting the company Quan? Sure, so Quan, I'm the co-founder with uh, my amazing sort of partner, Arusha. She, how, how it all really started is I met Arusha uh, a few, well, five years ago. We were both living in Amsterdam. I was the CEO of a tech startup and I was presenting on a, on a stage, and a woman came up to me and said, you have such a complimentary cognitive profile to this woman, Arusha. I need to introduce you. So she was an organizational psychologist who has a business in um, psychometric testing. And Arusha was really working in the space of, of team performance and culture and, and well-being. So she introduced us. It turns out we were working in the same building and we really hit it off, actually, uh, from the first coffee. So we, we met up regularly. And Arusha had this idea about this well-being assessment and how can we make sure that we measure well-being as a key measurement that against financial KPIs, engagement KPIs, and ensure that the cost of success is not employee well-being. So she came to me in Berlin. We did a kind of business model canvas session on my windows with post-it notes and turns out it should really be a platform. And then I think the week after, well, COVID was happening. And then the week after, Arusha did a pitch of the idea to the Red Cross and they said, can you roll it out to our 20,000 volunteers? And we said, okay, this, is, uh, this has got some legs. So that's really how, how the whole thing started. Wow. Uh, that's a very interesting origin story of Kwan. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about how you felt when you heard about this problem that you know your other co-founder Arushi was trying to solve. What was so enticing about this problem space for yourself that brought you to start this company with her? 
Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So uh, my background, my undergraduate was in exercise science. Believe it or not, I've never used it. I, I've <laughs> since done an MBA, but um, so I I have a, a strong interest in sort of health and well-being. But coming coming through my journey of um, being the startup CEO, where I was really experienced burnout firsthand, through to working in other companies and seeing where the cost of success is employee well-being. I understood it's a huge problem that wasn't really being solved properly, not below perk level. And it's something that I'm that I'm passionate about. I mean, we're wanting to create a movement and that's, that's what we're doing. So we it's been two years. Uh, we've now got, it's been quite a journey. We've to, over that two years, we spent a lot of time researching, so 500 user interviews. We did sessions with about 80 teams. Then before we built our beta product, uh, we got into Y Combinator, which is uh, one of the best accelerators in the world in Silicon Valley. So it's it's been quite a journey since then, actually. Wow. I think uh, <laughs> it would be very interesting to also cover, like, not just the good parts, but also the hard parts. Maybe we spend a little bit of time on the good parts. So Sure. Uh, you mentioned about getting into Y Combinator, uh, and I think it was a great moment. And I think it'll be interesting for people to learn about how was your journey uh, applying and getting into Y Combinator? That's a very good question. So up until applying for Y Combinator, we had an, a core team of eight people who are amazing, but working to next to nothing off an investment of total 200,000, which doesn't get you very far, as you, yeah. as you would know. So we were doing a lot with a little, and this is where we were really using it to do deep understanding of the problem space and user research and prototyping and iterating. We were coming to the end of the line, basically. <laughs> we apply as in running out of money and options. We, we on the week leading up to Y, or the two weeks leading up to Y Combinator, I think we had two term sheets and a merger offer. Wow. Which is, I know, kind of a crazy time. Uh, but the other the other options were not right. And then Y Combinator happened. And then a, a lot changed for us after that in terms of the valuation of the company, with the investment we're able to get in. Um, so it was really, I remember um, <laughs> Taking a walk with Arusha around around the block, thinking where is the what's going to be the next step, you know, and the the path materialised because we really trust in and what we're doing and we will find a way and the path was uh, Y Combinator, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. It would be also quite I'm quite curious all again to hear how was your experience in the journey through Y Combinator, obviously. Um, subject to what you could share with us in this sure. forum, but it'll be very interesting for also budding entrepreneurs and companies who are also in the same bucket, you know, looking at yeah. op opportunities for them to accelerate. Sure. So Y Combinator, we didn't actually know that much about it. We knew it was meant to be the best accelerator in the world. It's based in Silicon Valley. It's had the most unicorns come come out of it. And we, we sent off the application process. We actually used it as an opportunity to sharpen our pitch because it's quite extensive. So we're like, we didn't really think we would get in. 
And then we, so I know there were 17, over 17,000 applications. And then we heard that we'd got the first interview. Uh, and that's that was amazing timing for us. But that's where the Dutch ecosystem actually really pulled through. And we met with four founders uh, who were Dutch entrepreneurs who had been through the program. I think there's only been eight uh, startups from the Netherlands in the past 20 years who have been through the program. Uh, so they did mock interviews with us because it's uh, quite, the interview process is quite extensive. It's very vivid, you'll know from our past experience, precision mm -hmm. questioning was good mm. training for these mock interviews. You have 10 minutes of an interview with the panel of whether they decide if you're in or not. So these these founders were hugely beneficial going through this process with us, with these mock interviews, giving us advice. So went through the mock interview and then we found out that we were in. So I think it's it's uh, one point something percent that get in and only then one percent of the whole batch is, is um, your woman from the Netherlands, uh, from Europe. So so we're, we're used to um, being the underdog, let's say. <laughs> and once we were in, it's um, three months really intense. We've just finished it three months intense program where um, they take you through all the different parts of, of um, kind of running a business, but more around product market fit and growth. And at the end, there's a demo day. So you need to hit all these targets every week, week on week growth. And then you pitch um, to about 1000 plus investors on demo day to basically raise your seed round. But what was uh, I mean, we learned a lot, if I think of just the learnings from Y Combinator. We were really sharp with our focus, with our goals, with our targets and what we needed to do to get there. Um, we were re we're really sharp on, on our roles. So me focusing on the product market fit with the product, Arusha really on the commercial and reducing the time to, to close, for example. And... Um, the other really amazing thing about Y Combinator, not only with the knowledge, I mean, every week you meet with the company who has been through the program and been successful on a Zoom call like Stripe, like Airbnb, like Twitch, for example, but our batchmates in the network there, learning from each other, going through this journey together. Uh, yeah, so it was it was a pretty amazing experience, exhausting. Uh, we were, it was, this year it was remote because of COVID, so we were working Silicon Valley time, so 6 p.m. to midnight every evening wow. <laughs> for three months. Yeah. When you put Y Combinator and then the investor calls around it. Yeah, so it was a, it was a very, um, we, learned, we learned a lot and it really accelerated our thinking, I think. Yeah. I bet. I mean, I think as you just described, it would have been an amazing experience going through the journey, tiring, of course, working with different time zone. But I think uh, obviously sets you in the right direction of where you want to yeah. take off. What, if I could ask, what were the takeaways that you got out from the from this particular accelerator program that you feel would be very relevant as you start thinking about the future of your organization? Yeah, that's that's a good that's a really good question. So, what I've learned is there's three things that make a startup successful. It's the team, it's um, 
product market fit and its growth. So those, and you need all of those to be alone. Like if you have a good market, but not a good team or product market fit, it's not gonna work. If you have product market fit, but not a great team, it's not gonna work. So all of those three things are really important. And the, there's kind of two reasons that this is what Y Combinator have, have taught us, have said that startups fail. One is that there's a, a disagreement with the co-founders which I'm very fortunate that Arusha and I, are, um, we have a very, very strong relationship. It's a bit like we're, we're family coming through this journey. Um, and the other thing is not achieving product market fit. So not talking to your users enough. This build and they will come mentality. Like I know Airbnb, for example, they, their founders had um, two user interviews every week for, for years and years. Um, we also learned uh, you need to keep your customers close in the beginning, especially your first 100. So what we did, we've set up a direct Slack channel with the team leads of all of the customers that we have so that we have direct contact helping them through the journey, capturing the questions. So we turn them into product features, for example. Um, what was the... Yeah, and then growth. So... We got a sales coach through YC, which who was amazing and is actually um, um, still going to continue work with us in, in, a ver in various ways. But he really taught us how to make sales a repeatable process, which really we we got 18 new customers in 10 weeks since launching, mm -hmm. which was amazing traction for us. And um, Arusha is now closing sales on one call we, we it used to take months and months mm. of kind of learning on and that's really a sign of product market fit yeah brilliant for yourself for your personal growth how was that experience uh, getting through the y combinator and also going through that process of as you said the program is complete now what was obviously from you had some organization lessons and the in the learnings how did you see your growth through that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So there's a couple of things from, from my growth. One is really sharp and clear and being efficient with your time. So we're, we're now so good on setting targets, rallying the team around it and making sure that we're hyper-focused because in the beginning, there's so many things that you can be working on and, for, as a startup, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done. So making sure we're all working together on the most important important parts has been has been one. Another uh, personal element. So it has been very intense and eating our well. I, there's a saying in New Zealand. I don't know if it trans in Australia. I don't know if it translates in Europe. But our team. Uh, at, understand it now where you say eat your own dog food mm. so with Arusha and I both have to be really aware of our own well-being through this process and making sure we're, we're keeping each other in check recognizing the signs because it, it was a, a very intense um, very intense process the other thing I think for my own learning is um, everything you know you get you go into this thinking it's it's kind of uh, a fluke or good luck or it's not actually if you mm. have processes repeatable processes that you can take to scale 
and you regularly um, listen to your customers. It's ever, you know, that's based on data and make decisions on that. That's that's how. And the same with sales. It's actually a repeatable process. I don't know why that was so surprising, but you see these kind of um, charismatic. And you think, oh, it was all—it's—it's it's all based on that individual. I mean, there's a lot of that, mm. of course, but a lot of it is is being very structured in the way that you approach things. Yeah, mm. which is which is great to learn. Brilliant. Before we talk about you know the the hard parts of obviously going through the experience, I want to also get a little bit background on your journey. I think you mentioned yeah. about you from originally from New Zealand and uh, you moved to Amsterdam. Uh, tell us a little bit journey before Kwan. How, how, what were these key, I would say, dots that you connected to reach Kwan? Yeah, that's a good. So I'll start back from the beginning. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so yeah, from New Zealand, but my father was in the military, so we moved. I mean, he's just retired after ten years with the UN in Somalia, so we moved to a lot of different places. I mean, we lived in Egypt and Singapore and different places across New Zealand. So I know that, and since then I've lived in 10 countries um, on the way to Amsterdam. <laughs> so um, that's really instanced a, in a sense of uh, adventure. And, and um, I know once I did a psychometric test of some sort and I was in the top 1% for able to handle ambiguity. So I think that that's something a bit to set the scene. Uh, I studied in New Zealand and then left uh, straight away as soon as I could at 21 to London, where I worked for a private equity firm was my first job, my first kind of proper job. And it really made me realise what I didn't want to do, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest, which were, but it was a good, it was a good experience. And the, the global financial crisis happened and I did, took a job uh, as a stewardess on a super yacht and had six months traveling through Africa and that, that kind of thing. But um, then after that, I started working, which was really foundational, pivotal moment for me in my career. I worked for a company called New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. So it's a, it's a public-private partnership and its mission is to help New Zealand companies be successful exporting. So I was in the professional services um, side of that, and I had a very amazing uh, leader, my boss, David Downs. He came from, he was the CEO of Microsoft Asia, but he, for me, was the first real example of leadership, what it means to um, give feedback, coach, structure, structure the teams properly. I was sort of as... Um, chief of staff, so really got to experience the strategy and the change management and, and also he made sure I was upskilling myself with design thinking, with strategy, with Lean Six Sigma, with all that kind of stuff. And then that job I took me to different places in the world, so US, London, uh, Asia, and that was amazing, working with these amazing companies, trying to help them be successful, launching different services, so that was um that was a really great place to cut my teeth and get such broad experience. Uh, they also put me through when I was in London, um, supported me in my MBA in Edinburgh, which was also amazing. Then when I left uh, NZTE, I yeah, moved to Amsterdam 
and I was working as a freelancer with with various startups. I even worked for the Estonian government for a while as a contractor in Estonia, helping them sharpen their um, customer-facing services. Uh, but I, I started in the startup where I took a um, a sort of short-term role around being an innovation consultant, and I was one month in, and they said, "Can you be the CEO?" And I naively said yes, and I was very, that was probably one of my biggest learnings, especially of uh, what not to do. I was very um, naive and inexperienced, but learned a lot. That that um, startup ended up being acquired by Inelites. And after that, so that was a couple of years, and that was really, really tough, for, you know, in terms of uh, having cash flow issues, of uh, all, all sorts of things, acquisitions that didn't happen, um, keep motivating a team through all these, all when there's, it's so um, up and down. And then I came to the German unicorn, which is which is Zalando as an executive, and that was really interesting. I was head of business and um, business development and operations. That was uh, super interesting uh, learnings as well in terms of taking a product to deliver at scale, both from the data acquisition side, taking it through a process from our, our CTO there was the way that it was structured to deliver at scale. So that was also amazing um, experience. And I feel like all of these things have actually led me to Quam, all of the skills that I've picked up along the way. Has, uh, feels like it was a road that was um, bringing me here. And I'm really, the way that we are, um, what we're delivering in terms of our mission, but also the way that we're running Quan, we really believe in in a um, sort of future-focused organization with flexibility and- I think one thing that, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing that sticks with me with the arc of your journey is, as you said, dealing with ambiguity. And obviously, the work that you're doing right now uh, is obviously full of ambiguity. Uh, nothing is nothing is like ready to be attacked. We know what we need to work with. So a lot of ambiguity yeah. comes with this role. Um, how? What are the things that you think about when you have to deal with ambiguity in your journey so far, not just at Quan, but also elsewhere? What has been your reflections of... Uh, Figuring out through an ambiguity, what 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 do you see yourself uh, doing better in that? That perhaps other people who may be also in that situation of dealing with ambiguity could learn from. That's yeah, that's a good question. So there's probably two answers to that. There's one from a from a quan company perspective, and then there's one from a personal perspective. But they they align. But because we're going through, we go through that. We went through this with quan. From the beginning, you know, um, uh, what are we going to build? And and we're actually going through that right now with launching in another part of our of our product. And there's a couple of things. It's it's trust the process. So we are, we're very design thinking led. We have two amazing designers. So we we collect user insights. We prototype. We test. We iterate. That's the other one. The other one is pivoting fast. I know with with Y Combinator, um, they taught us that quite often 
founders are so stuck on their, this idea and they keep pushing it, although all the signs are telling them and the data is telling them that you need to pivot. So I think it's being able to pivot fast is, is the other thing based on, on the data and the insights and, and what it's telling you. From a personal perspective, uh, it's it's probably similar. I've I've trusted the process that it'll get me where I I need to go. I've gone and I think I go in with um, without over egging the expectations. I don't want to say I don't have any expectations, but I go in taking it for what it is rather than what I the, what I expect it to be and been able to pivot. Yeah. No, I think this is such a uh, uh, important topic to kind of spend time on because I think, as you said, that being able to live and also work in different countries with different cultures and set up and also sizes of organization, I think allows you to build this repertoire of different ways of addressing ambiguity at different yeah. levels. Um, if you have someone who is listening or watching this podcast and they may be in their formative years, uh, maybe university, just graduating from university, or what would be your advice for them, especially around preparing themselves for dealing with this ambiguous world that we live in? Yeah, that's that's a good question. The, the number one thing I would say and it's really one of our values that we hold at Qantas be curious be curious be open ask lots of questions even if you think they're dumb questions because they're not <laughs> there's no such thing as a as a dumb question I think um, the other thing is understanding and this is another thing we really do at Quan self-awareness of the way you work and what you need and where your barriers are is really a part of the the process you know um i know for example you were talking about dealing with with it as a leader i know with different groups of people i have to structure things differently to make it more comfortable for them so some people need an agenda up front for example so, or, or, of what the workshop's going to be about so that they can have structure their thinking beforehand mostly introverts usually whereas mm -hmm. extroverts prefer to build off each other in the session. So I think knowing, yeah, curiosity and building self-awareness of what you need and, and what works for you, what doesn't, and being vocal about that or being aware of it and setting the boundaries would be would be the advice. So curiosity and build self-awareness. Yeah. Fantastic. I also want to double click on the part around, as you said, uh, taking care of yourself and your well-being as Obviously, you and uh, your co-founder Arushi are running a well-being organization. How does that look like uh, to an outsider? Like, for example, you being in the in the eye of the storm with respect to managing this chaos and ambiguity that comes with running an organization like this. How do you, as a leader, help uh, work towards your own well-being? Also yeah. kind of working with an organization which is solving the well-being problem for everybody else. Yeah, so we 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 um, consume our own product and we test a lot on ourselves. So we take the assessment, the well-being assessment, it measures uh, five dimensions, the so mind meaning, self-fulfillment, social connectedness and body. And then we have 30 sub-dimensions and then 
220 predictors underneath that. So the, the framework is, is very, it demonstrates A, the, the complexity of, of wellbeing and how it's all interconnected, but the depth. So we take the assessment regularly as a team and we have sessions where we talk about it and then we implement recommended solutions that, that we would um, do on the platform. From a personal perspective, it's, I, it is, it's always, uh, I'm so um, happy that it still remains relevant because your wellbeing changes all the time. So the last time we did the assessment, um, I, my personal life had completely plummeted. That had not been the case for me before, but it's because I don't have a personal life because every evening <laughs> I'm, I was with the, with the Y Combinator um, sessions. So the steps I took to address it was making sure that I got structured time for exercise. I went I, and visited my family in London and spent some time there and then friends in Berlin during and just took took the meetings from there to, to make sure I was feeling more connected with people that I loved, for example. Um, and Arusha and I, Arusha is very self-aware with, with her kind of triggers. And we're both so, and it's great that we have those really open conversations with each other because we can recognize um, when someone is triggered and, and we laugh, we joke about that we don't feed it. <laughs> You know, if someone's in a state of, of a bit of a spin, you know, because they've been with um, something's gone off, we we protect them, each each other a little bit, and we make sure that you have the space that you need. And then we come out of it, we're like, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> sorry about that. I was looping or I was, uh, yeah. Mm. So that's, that's how we, and, be, and it got, comes back to the self-awareness and recognising what you need and where your where your boundaries are, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very nicely put. Um, what I take away from here is uh, recognizing, obviously, it's dog fooding, as you said, uh, and which is a good thing that you already have a platform and a system that you could take advantage of, but also creating that opportunities and time for yourself where you can address some of the observations that you have as you build the self-awareness. I have a little bit of meta question here, uh, more sure. like more philosophical, especially with the work that you and your co-founder and your team is doing in Kwan. What do you think are possibly the indicators that, you know, people are becoming more, I would say, serious about thinking about well-being at work? Yeah. Is it the modern work style, the life or is it was it purely COVID? What do you think are those micro and macro trends which are yeah. leading to people thinking seriously about well-being, not just at work but off work as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So COVID definitely accelerated this thinking for sure because people could no longer leave their home life at home. It was completely mm. mixed. Combined with things like uh, the Great Resignation, that is, a, and a huge increase in in burnout. So companies are now. I read a stat uh, recently: 84% of companies have increased their focus on mental health. So that those are kind of the triggers. What what we've found, so the, there's some really key learnings that we've found from a, from a more in, in quan perspective. So we've had more than 2,000 people take the assessment. 
What's scoring lowest um, by far across the sub-dimensions is burnout, stress at work, anxiety at work. Mm. We initially built Quan, and this is a, a lesson of, a, of, of pivoting, we built Quan where we wanted to help the individual, the individual employee, so they'd do the assessment and then would point them to to like sleep stories or a headspace or, or a therapist, you know. Mm. But because this is what's scoring low consistently, they're still going to burn out unless you address the underlying cause, which is ways of working. Mm. So we had to pivot, uh, which has actually been one of our key differentiators, to um, delivering a service for teams and team leads. Mm. So teams, we now aggregate the results up to team level and then suggest interventions for the team, and we support the team leads through a three-month journey on how to have these conversations with your team, how to implement these um these suggested interventions because the team leads are really struggling. They're like, we, we want, we know we need to do something, but we don't have the language, we don't have the tools. Um, so that's been that's been super interesting um, observation and learning that we've that we've developed. In terms of kind of the, the problem that we're solving, if, uh, so there's the meta of the you know the great resignation, the increase in burnout, and and the younger generations demanding more. Uh, mm. from the organisation. For companies, if you think of how they've treated well-being, it's, they've treated it like well-being perks, but it's a really fragmented, ineffective market. It's very difficult for them to get a return on investment on it, and only 3% of offerings are actually evidence-based. Mm. So that, for them, is, is problems that we're trying to solve with Quam. So we first identify the need, uh, we give with data and insights, and then we point to solutions that are that are evidence-based in a in a, a science-backed way, basically, where they can return, measure the effectiveness and the return on investment. Right. Yeah. I think it's a that's a very fair point, and I think one thing that also connects to me is how well-being, especially mental well-being, is also kind of a taboo subject in some cultures, yeah. right? It's not spoken about that openly. I have lived and worked in East Asia for long periods of time. I think they're also kind of slowly rising up to address some of the mental well-being situation, which I think you often hear, right? People working 18 hours or 19 mm. hours a day, and most of them in an office all the time. And I think obviously it there is a there is a difference between how each culture and society addresses uh, mental well-being and obviously physical well-being. Uh, how have you been through the experience of talking to customers and while building this product, considered taboo of having these conversations, especially with the leaders with and their employees? Yeah, so we've been very fortunate that the, our, our ICP, our ideal customer profile, is between sort of 10 to 200, although we have we do have now uh, a couple of 500 companies and one that's now 1,500, but they are uh, digitally mature, uh, tend to be scale-up, um, remote or hybrid uh, English-speaking. Those are those are the people that it's really resonating with because they're really feeling a, a need for um, it's a t attention and retract um, uh, sorry attraction and retention mm -hmm. uh, is is one of the main drivers for them. So this is and it all seems to be 
res like they are really open-minded with the, with these kind of conversations, or they have to be, I think, in order to get this talent on board. And you can also almost argue that the tech kind of this kind of culture is a culture within itself. So, uh, but what we have found is we've we've across I think seven different countries or so, and it seems because it's so personal to you and and it's a self-assessment, it seems to resonate because it's not against some metric that we're setting it's your own metrics with with yourself mm. so, and then what you can do to improve so so far i've actually absolutely recognized this different cultural um variations but so far we haven't hit so much of that yet mm. that's fantastic um Let's steer back to the parts around hard parts of you know yeah. running an organization. If you can, and maybe obviously with the discretion and 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 things that you can share, what has been the aspects which you found as obviously interesting challenge for you to navigate as you went through starting an organization in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, and also working on a problem. Which I still feel is still not mainstream. I mm. think everybody's well, we, opening we either. Are, um, yeah, we're category defining for sure. Yeah, that makes. I mean, every <laughs> other entrepreneur is either opening a delivery company or something these fintech. days. Yeah, fintech. So, tell us a little bit about uh, the journey through the pandemic, starting an organization and working on this space, especially. What was what hard for you and challenging for you and your team to go through this? And uh, maybe that will be lessons there that we can take away for all sure. of us. Sure. Yeah. So in terms of starting, yeah, we started the company during the pandemic. So we're completely remote. We've got team members in the US and, and across Europe who we've never met each other, a lot of them. So mm. uh, um, yeah, we've got a team of 15 with a few with some interns as well. Um, additionally, I think with the types of people that we have who, are, A, they're really passionate about the cause, um, and B, we this is how we started and this is what we know. So I don't think it was harder of going from completely working together to working remote. So we, we built up strong structures in place so that we could support that. So we do daily stand-ups, for example, we do team building, we do um, the team wellbeing sessions. So that that actually hasn't been, other than um, ensuring with your own wellbeing that you get out and that kind of thing, that starting during the pandemic hasn't been as challenging as I would have thought. But what has been, and the, the reason why we could accelerate so fast is because of the pandemic. You know, it was a bit of a like catalyst mm. for all of this um, to happen. But I think we're yet to see the real effects, to be honest. And now this is really important for, for companies to focus on. But what's been difficult for us, um, I think, I mean, like you mentioned, if you if you look at some of our peers and Y Combinator, we've got a couple of things that are against us. I mean, we're women, only 1% of women get funding in mm. Europe and the US from VCs. We're in mental health, we're in HR tech. Those are all kind of um, from a from a um, investment world, crosses a bit, you know, or things that count against us. So we've had to work that much harder, I think, to, to to get investment, which is 
which is um, kind of exhausting, you know. <laughs> mm. But but it also means that we are getting the right people that we want around us, and we're we're building for sustainable growth. It's not the, this bang and bust like you see of um, of some of these others <laughs> that are raising millions very early but don't have the substance in the team. I mean, we've got four PhDs on our team who mm. are working on the framework to ensure that it's a sustainable um, business. What else has been hard? Uh, I mean, there's lots of things uh, to, um, to have a think. So the, key le- the, the other key lessons that I've that I've learned, it's really important um, that you, who you surround yourself with. And there are a lot of people attracted to the startup space, but where we've had, we've got an incredible team. I mean, we couldn't have, there's no way we could have done anything like this without the team that we have. So we're extremely fortunate for that. But also the people we surround ourselves with as advisors and the other founders, mostly, who have been through it, who have been staring the bottom of the, the barrel of running out of cash or um, 100 no's from investors. And they've been incredibly valuable, worth their weight, weight in gold, these, these kind of advisors, I think. So that's been some, some big lessons. The other, another big lesson is um, really making sure that we've you're focused on the users, you know, with understanding the the needs, talking to them regularly. The first 100, yeah, that would be that would be the the kind of lessons I think. Mm. How hard was to do customer development in this process, especially understanding what customer needs are? Do you can you share a little bit about how was that process for you and your team? Yeah, so we did in the beginning when we first built the framework and we were building out our MVP, we did uh, 500 user interviews over the process. So we really, from all both individual users, managers and buyers, and then we had, I think, 60 um, uh, therapists and doctors and and that kind of thing to validate. So that's been extremely informative that we're so um, user interview focused. We've really followed design-led processes where we build a wireframe, we prototype. We've done, like, going through this, we've had, so we built the assessment and then we had sort of some some um, added-on reports that we, we made it look like it all came together, but it didn't really. But you to get out there kind of quick and dirty, to test it first and understand and then and then iterate. So I think that's been, that's continuously being our process, deep user research and um, building, testing and iterating throughout the whole, the whole uh, process. And we're really proud of that, actually. Some, I mean, I mentioned earlier our pivot to the team. Uh, the other two big pivots that we've learned as a result of this. One was the whole the whole first idea of Quan was that we match individuals to therapists. And then we did some interviews and only 20% of the users actually wanted to be matched for therapists. <laughs> the rest wanted a self-help and then the mm. companies didn't actually want to pay for it. So we would have, um, that would have been fallen flat on its face. The, another key learning that we've made is we enabled, and it was actually a really good thing that we did. So we enabled companies to upload what they're already offering employees for um, for well-being, mm. so that you can point them 
to what the company's already offering. And what we that was super interesting to see what was used, what wasn't. The companies could get a bit of return on investment view, but we really saw where the gaps are. Like 63% of companies don't have anything that we mm. work with. So that means we now know we need to build out an ecosystem to point to these companies to solutions that are effective, you know, that's beyond Com, for example. Mm. So just some kind of anecdotes of, of what that's meant. Right. So, I mean, Lucy, imagine we have, uh, let's say, in the audience listening to this or watching this podcast, there are leaders who who have been thinking about this, about what can they do in their role to help their team and employees to have a better well-being at work. What is what is your message to them? What, what do you want them to think about? Uh, obviously, there's a quan part of it, but as general about well-being at work, where yeah. what should they start up with? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one thing we see quite commonly is it's not the manager's role to solve the problems. <laughs> it's a you know that you're not going to solve someone's personal well-being problems, and nor should you. But it's creating the environment. We it's you can openly talk about it. And especially in one-to-ones and beyond one-to-ones as a team, and then identifying as a team ways of working that are not working that you can fix. You know, if it's if it's stress, if it's um, too high pressure around deadlines, for example, if there's too much ambiguity and you need more definition of the roles. So, but it starts with that mindset of listening and creating the environment um, and having the language. I think that's what Quan. That's the number one thing that um, that managers appreciate about Quan is is the insights, but then the language on how to have these conversations with with their team. Yeah. Fantastic. We are almost at the uh, end of our conversation, and I think aspects that we talked about, I would think we could spin off few more <laughs> podcasts from there. As we end, I think for me, it's interesting to see how you think about a desired end state of the world, where perhaps talking about and addressing well-being, both physical, mental, and spiritual, uh, is not an alien topic. How does how do you see Kwan's role in that, that end state picture of, of yeah. where you're heading to? That's a good question. So to, I'll reiterate our mission. Our mission is to place well-being at the heart of success. And that means that employees view well-being equally as important as financial measures or engagement measures or um, sales measures. That's And that's what we're creating really as a movement towards that and how we've been doing it which has been interesting is a bottom up so team leads are the ones that are talking to us first that want this mm. so we're working with team leads and then creating enough of a of a movement within the organization that then hr or whatever has to has to um do something about it but that's that's where it's going to start with because they're the ones who are really feeling it and needing it Fantastic. Lucy, I deeply enjoyed this conversation. I know we had some hiccups in the beginning to get to the recording and everything, but I'm also super appreciative of the time that you gave me. 
No, um, thank you so much, Vivek. And Vivek's also helped Kwan a lot with, I've tapped on his shoulder for, for user interviews more than once. <laughs> I, Which has been it was a drop in the ocean yeah. for what you are doing. Thank you. But thank you for having me. I really appreciate the time with you and to share my story. And I'm happy if anyone wants to reach out and connect and um, I'm really happy to do so. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy.